Good morning. Good to see everybody out there and uh, in person. And uh, so many, uh, so many are here this morning. That's great to see you, and also those who are out there that we can't see, uh, but we know you're joining us. And uh, just want to welcome you to our time together, especially if you're new and joining us in person or online. Uh, welcome to our time together. My name is Randy. I'm minister here, and I'm excited because we have a new series. Uh, that we're about to jump into here about the Bible. This is going to be extremely practical and helpful to you. Uh, let me remind you up front that no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, reading the Bible is the most important thing, most powerful thing that you can do to help move you on your journey. So I just want to encourage you uh, to, uh, to get into the Word. Now before we jump in too far, I have a confession I want to make to you, and that is that I don't like to read instructions. That may come as a surprise to you. Probably not as a man. I think that's probably what makes a man a man. One of the big things, you don't read instructions. Uh, in fact, one of the quickest ways I know to get your man card pulled is to go, let's, let's see how this thing works. Let's read the instructions first. Guys, don't do that. Now, sometimes I got to be honest with you, get you in trouble because this morning I go back here to make uh, some of this hot tea and I run the, the K cup machine over with water and mess it all up and Dan has to fix it. So, but you know, every now and then, Somebody's going to be there to help bail you out, right? So why read the instructions? But you know what? Um, the reality is that uh, when you have something really important, uh, for me, if I spend a bunch of money on something, I'm going to probably be more likely to read the instructions on it. If it's a once-in-a-lifetime shot, if you've got a one-time, it's either going to work this time or not, I might read the instructions. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today because we're going to talk about the instructions to life. We're going to talk about the Word of God, the Bible, and just talk about the fact that we have one shot at life. We have one shot at life. We pass through this life one time, and if we blow it in that lifetime, we're not going to get a second chance at it. And the reality is that we need to know how to live this life in a way that matters and is successful and that pleases the one who made us. That's really important. You know, you can get by with assembling a swing set for your kids and never look in the instructions. It might work. It might even be safe and not fall down on them. But for some, it's important to life. You know, you and I need to know what we're doing, especially as a parent. Because I want to tell you, as a parent, your failures could echo down through generations. Your failure as a parent, your failure to lead could echo down and impact others. On the other hand, your success in pleasing God and being a successful, living a successful life will leave a legacy for generations to follow along. And like Tony said earlier, oftentimes we encourage people, read your Bible, read your Bible to know how to live life, but oftentimes we don't tell you how to do that or show you how to do it. And the reality is that the Bible, for many of us who've read it for years, we're very comfortable with it, but for a lot of people it can be intimidating and very challenging to read it. For example, if you sit down and read the Bible from cover to cover, Page one, which is how we read most books, uh, if we read like that, you're probably going to struggle in some ways because the timeline in the Bible can be kind of confusing, to be honest with you. It's a little bit complicated about how to understand the structure of the Bible. There's oftentimes repetition in the Bible. People say, I just read this story, the same story a couple of weeks ago when I'm reading through the New Testament especially. Um, you may not understand who a certain section of Scripture is written to. Or maybe how one part of the Bible relates to the rest of the Bible or another part of the Bible. 
So the Bible really isn't a novel. It's not written in that way that you can sit down and read through like that. It's not a normal book also because the writings are not written by a human being. The writings are really inspired by God himself. He is the author. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Many things you read in the Bible will strike you as being very unusual, odd. And you may look at that and you go, well, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. And so we need God's help to understand the Bible. And we ought to ask God, help me understand your word. Help me discern the things of the Spirit because they may, they may be foolishness to the world around us. Our natural minds oftentimes struggle with what we can't see and what we, what's not easy to understand. And that's one reason why the Bible illustrates a lot of spiritual truths and it kind of applies them or parallels them with everyday things that we do understand, like God being our Father. We get the idea of a Father. And also Jesus talking about his parables and, and, and comparing them with things like fishing and farming and ranching, things that are pretty commonplace to us. And we begin to see the truths that are there because the Bible illustrates and prepare, uh, parallels them with things that we do understand. Now, we call the Bible a book. And uh, I was thinking about that. You know, we know what a book is with something we hold in our hands, has a cover and pages inside. For many years, the Bible was kind of limited to that. We all knew that to be the Bible. But today, the Bible is available in many different formats. In fact, I see several of you out there, not only with your Bible, your book Bible, but your phone Bible or your tablet Bible, because the Bible is, uh, is in many different forms today. I personally use an app called YouVersion. If you don't have a Bible reading app, YouVersion is awesome. It's free. Download it to your phone. You always have it with you. Even if you don't have internet access, you've got the Bible right there. And uh, sometimes I read, the, I read through the, the Bible in, in the mornings, but sometimes I let the Bible read to me. And I think that's kind of cool. Your book can't do that. So if there's one thing your phone can do or a tablet can do, a computer. So that's a cool thing as well. Maybe if you uh, have your hands full and you just want to hear the Word, you can do it anytime. It's always going to be with you. So I would encourage you to check that out a little bit. You know, and while the book really is a book, even an online book or a, um, a book that we can, you know, can have on our phones, it really is more than a book. It's a collection of books, and it's written by many different authors. Not just one, but, but several, as we're going to see here in a moment. So I, I wanted to take some time this morning and kind of just really start basically about the Bible and just try to help familiarize you with it. I know we have people who have read the Bible all their lives. I know we have people that have probably never read the Bible, seriously. So we're going to kind of be basic, uh, but I think encourage everyone. So let's look at the makeup of the Bible. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up or your tablet to the table of contents. Even a tablet sometime will have a, a table of contents there. But open it up if you want to, and, uh, and we'll see that the, book, the Bible's divided, first of all, into two major sections. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they're very different. The Old Testament is first, so naturally if you began reading the, it as a book, you would probably read the first book of the Bible, the, the book of Genesis. But the Old Testament is made up of 39 separate books written by 28 different authors, 39 books, 28 authors. It covers a time span of over 4,000 years, from creation all the way down to 400 years before Jesus was born. So that's a broad span of time that the Old Testament covers there. It's made up of three different types of books. First of all, there are history books. There are books that just tell us what was happening, what happened back then, including creation, 
uh, the first humans, everything, how, how the world began to develop. And it's also interesting that Bible history intersects with secular history. It's one of the ways that we can find this fascinating to hear what was going on in the rest of the world. And we learn so much. We learn a lot about what's happening in the world through the Bible. So there's the historical books. The second part of the type of books are poetry. Now, if you're like me, you're not a big poetry person, you know, but, but it's not just poetry. It's not just, you know, words that rhyme. There are lots of poems, but songs and hymns and stories that are in the section of poetry. And it's a beautiful place. The Psalms are a beautiful example of that. Song of Solomon are, are some of the poetry books that we have there. And then the third section of the Old Testament are called the prophetic books. And these are written, obviously, by prophets. Uh, but events are prophesied in the Old Testament, and then they are oftentimes fulfilled in the New Testament. Sometimes they're fulfilled immediately, sometimes it's long-term. Many of these prophecies were about Jesus, about His coming. And so the prophets do that. Not only do they prophesy things that might happen, but they also speak for God. So those are the three types of books that are in the Old Testament. The Old Testament primarily, historically, talks about the Jewish nation. So if you want to study the history of the Hebrew nation, you would need to read the first 17 books of the Bible, Genesis through Esther. To understand the poetry of, poetry of Israel, you would need to read the next five books, uh, Job through the Song of Solomon. And by the way, Job was probably the first book that was ever written. Uh, Job uh, took place very early in the history of the world. The prophecy of Israel can be found in the final 17 books, Isaiah through Malachi. So the Old Testament as a whole is not one continuous story that begins and then flows through. You know, I, I have to admit that for, for a while, I thought that's how it was, that it began with Genesis and then it ended with Malachi. But the reality is, is those last 17 books are all prophets and they all overlay into and on top of some of the history, like the Kings and Chronicles. You kind of have to back up and see where they, they take place in there. So understand that the Old Testament is not one continuous story. The, they just kind of work together, and the primary storyline of the Old Testament, the history, is really basically in the first 17 historical books. Now, the New Testament is a little bit different. The New Testament is made up of 27 books, and it's written by nine different authors, and it covers a much shorter span. In fact, only about 100 years. Old Testament, 4,000 years. The New Testament, only about 100 years, and it basically begins with the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, like the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't read like a storyline or novel from one book to the next, and some people misunderstand that, 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 and then they find repetition. They find repetition in the first four books of the New Testament. I'll tell you why in just a second. But the New Testament is made up in three different kinds of books. First of all, there are historical books, very similar to the old. The historical books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, we call them historical because they explain something that happened in history. And the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are basically parallel accounts of the life of Jesus. So each of these four men wrote down their experiences and their remembrance of what Jesus did. That's why you'll get some repetition from one to the next. That's why you'll say, I think I just read that a while back. And yes, you probably did, a very similar story. And each author is giving his account of the life of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you one thing that's really helpful, and Tony uses this a lot, is, is a book called The Harmony of the Gospel. 
And these books have been written, and they basically take the four Gospels, and they lay them down side by side so you can read through them and see what each writer talks about this particular event or this teachings of Jesus. And if you want to find a link for the purchase of that, different, or that book, one of those books, you can go on our website, the, the Move You site, Move University. You can go on there and you can find some links and also some resources. I think you can also discover uh, the plan to read through the Bible in the year, which uh, you ought to be doing at some point. But basically, as you see how these all work together, you see, okay, Matthew says this, and Mark says that, and Luke doesn't mention it, but John does as well. And it's really neat to see the harmony of the Gospels and how they work together. The book of Acts is the fifth book of history because it talks not about the life of Jesus, but it talks about the early church and how it began and kind of takes us into the first few years of the church. So that's the books of history in the New Testament. The second type of books in the New Testament are the Pauline epistles. And they were written by the Apostle Paul, which makes a lot of sense, right? He wrote 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Most of them are written to churches, while four of them are written basically to individuals. But as you can see in looking at the life of Paul, if you read a little bit about him, and again, it's recorded in the book of Acts, his life and ministry is, but he was a very prolific writer as well as a missionary and evangelist. The third group of books are called the general epistles. And these are written to individuals and churches by several different authors. Most of them are apostles, by the way, as well. They call them general because they kind of loop, uh, kind of just put them into one section there. And the primary focus of all the epistles, Paul's and the general epistles, is basically instructing us in Christian doctrine and lifestyle. And if you read through that and you want to know who wrote them, the author usually introduced themselves in the text or they have the name of the book. John, Peter, uh, James, folks like that. So that kind of helps you understand, familiarize yourself a little bit with the Bible and how it's put together. Now, although the Bible was written by human hands, we've talked about several writers here through this, it, it is inspired by God. It's inspired by God. Now, what does that mean? Well, First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1 says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God inspired human writers. It was written with, by man's hand. It was written by a human being who wrote it down. But God, through this Holy Spirit, inspired them in the words to say. And so they, they didn't just write their thoughts. They did use their style of writing. You'll see that the Bible's written in different styles because different authors, right? But the Holy Spirit inspired them as they wrote these words. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus is telling his disciples, one day you'll record this, and I know you think you'll forget it, but the Holy Spirit will remind you gently, bring these things to remembrance as you write them down. You see, as in true in all areas of life and history, someone always needs to document what's happening, what happened in the past, and who said what? So subsequent generations will know. And this is the most important information that the world will ever know. And that's why it's so important that we have the Bible. That's why we need to treasure the Bible as God's Word. Now, the inspiration of the Bible is what gives the Bible its authority. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about how authoritative God's Word, God's Word is truth. And it is true because it's inspired by God. It's why we accept it as ultimate truth 
and what we got our lives by. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So as believers, you see, we have to be willing to let the Bible confront us and correct us and teach us, and we view it as the very Word of God. I love that verse of Scripture because it says that Scripture is breathed out by God. It is the breath of God that we have that comes to us. We're going to talk more about this a little bit later in the series, but we got to understand that when God speaks, we listen. It is truth. That's how we guide our life. It's the instruction book of life. We want to walk and live by the book. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, and that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. This is why the word of God is so powerful, because it is uh, truth. It is the breath of God, and it is to be viewed as a final authority for our lives. See, the very fact that the Bible is inspired explains why, although the Bible was written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, yet it has only one common theme that runs throughout it. Yes, it is difficult to read as a novel. We might doesn't read that way, but the one theme runs throughout it. There's not a dozen themes in the Bible. There's one common theme. These authors lived in different places, different times, with different uh, cultures. They had a lot of different occupations and lifestyles, but the reality is the focus of what they've written is the very same, to reveal God's heart to us and God's will for mankind. And so that's how we view (coughs) the Bible as truth. (coughs) Now, how do we know the Bible is true? Well, obviously, we take this by faith. The Bible gives credibility to itself. It tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God. The true church believes it to be the truth. But there are other outside sources. And this is what I think is kind of fascinating uh, about the credibility of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible. It's not just that the Bible says the Bible itself is true, but there are other proofs out there that we can look at that even secular people who may not even be believers can say, yeah, it is true. It makes sense. And, and these are some of the ways. So I'm going to give you some of the ways that we can prove that the Bible's credible. The first one is there are thousands of biblical manuscripts. There are thousands of biblical manuscripts. There's not just one copy of the Bible that we go back to and say that was it. There are thousands of them. Now, we do not have any in the original writings. In other words, the writings that Paul wrote by his own hand, we don't have any of those. The reality is they were written on Um, things that like animal skin and other materials that deteriorated very very quickly. We don't have those originals, but what we do have are copies and copies of the originals. Now, how can we know that they're accurate? Well, there's a way that people check the accuracy of ancient documents, and that is by comparing copies that they have that have come from different sources and different places. There are an incredibly high number of surviving copies of original biblical manuscripts. Not, not the original, but the copies of the original. Now, these copies are called manuscripts, and there are roughly 6,000 surviving manuscripts of the New Testament alone, 6,000 of them. This makes it the most credible document of all ancient documents that are out there. The, the next closest contender uh, of that time era is, is uh, Homer's The Iliad. It has only 600 existing copies. And there are 6,000 of the Bible. So you can see there's a, quite a bit of difference there. 
Now, the value of having a large number of these manuscripts is that it allows the people, uh, the, uh, the, uh, those who are, are seeking to, to prove this, to examine and compare writings, which is valuable when you might take a copy from one culture or one geographical area and compare it to another. And when they're making these comparisons, you can determine if the documents were reliably copied from the original source, and you can determine if the writers have strayed from the sources or seeing where that might have happened. And so that's kind of how they prove these, uh, the uh, credibility of an ancient document of any sort. So in short, having an abundance of these manuscripts shows us that copying Scripture is not like a game of telephone. You probably played telephone when you were younger, right? You sat in a circle or a line, and one person said something and, and whispered it in the ear of another, and then they told the next person what they heard, and they told the next one what they heard. That's not how the Scripture was translated and passed down through time. It's not a game of telephone. In reality, there was so much effort and so much credibility that was put into, these, uh, into this process. It's, uh, when you compare the amount of manuscripts evidence that, that we have, it shows that the New Testament is 99.5% accurate, and that the vast majority of differences are in spelling, or just in minor copying errors of some sort. Now, most importantly, though, you ought to know that not a single uh, variation in these thousands of manuscripts has ever been shown to affect a theological issue. It's not like if there was a small error of copying, it's not like they said opposite things. It's just like a spelling issue or something very small. And while there may be differences among the manuscripts, we can have confidence that they stayed true to the originals because the copies themselves are so close to one another. They're so close to one another, even though they've been written at different times and in different places. So much effort was put into that process. Touch back on that just in a moment again. But the one thing that we find proof in are the manuscripts, 6,000 pieces of the the New Testament. The second proof is archaeology. And I'm not an archaeologist, but I'm kind of fascinated by it a little bit. But archaeology supports the biblical record. It has repeatedly confirmed the accuracy of Bible places, events, and people. Thousands and thousands of archaeological finds have corroborated the accounts of the Bible. And that evidence that we have quickly puts an end to any kind of allegations that the history in the Bible might be questionable. That, that place never existed. No, they probably found, some, found that place or evidence of that place in their digging. Bethinking.org has a few important examples of such evidence from archaeology. So if you want to look it up, Bethinking.org is a great place to look that. Now, it's also important to note that while archaeology has never proven everything in the Bible, and you wouldn't expect it to, it is true that an archaeological find has never disproven a single biblical event, a civilization, or an individual. On the contrary, in fact, there are numerous incidences in the Bible that archaeology has upheld the facts the Scripture has and disproved the skepticism of, of uh, academics. Now, over there in Bible lands... Uh, every inch is basically has historical relevance. Now, here in the U.S., there's lots of land, and your, your yard probably doesn't have any archaeology digs in it, but over there, almost everything has some archaeological value. And as they dig, they begin to find things. And as they build roads and houses, they discover things all the time. And countless cities and towns that are mentioned in the Bible uh, uh, have, have been discovered through excavation and to find many of these uh, places that we read about, including the city of Nazareth. I think there's a picture up there. In 2009, basically, Nazareth was excavated, and then Capernaum, 
which is Jesus' um, base of operation in the 1960s. They began to, to dig and, and excavate areas like this. I know Tony's been over there and seen these areas. Uh, we mentioned one time before the Pool of Bethesda. People kept saying, well, you know, where's the Pool of Bethesda? Well, it was discovered in the 1930s. The Pool of Siloam was discovered in 2004. And many other major finds, including important areas in Jerusalem. In fact, it would be impossible to list all of the archaeological finds that do support biblical accounts. Now, keep in mind, too, over there, uh, in, like uh, in some of, those, some of those cities, they just continue to build on top of, of the, other, other, uh, the past buildings. For example, in Thessalonica, I was able to, to pass through there, but there are no archaeological finds there because they just kept building on top of it. There's a major modern city there. Uh, but there isn't, uh, there's no uh, fines. Everything is underneath the city. On the other hand, Philippi, I've shown you pictures of that before. In Philippi, they stopped building. They had earthquakes and uh, some, some other reason they stopped the, the, the city. So there's no modern city. So the entire city of Philippi is an archaeological dig. And so they, they prove these things by their research. And that's pretty cool that we can find that, uh, see that today. Thirdly, there's proof that the original writings were faithfully preserved that they were faithfully preserved. You know, in the 1940s, a little shepherd boy threw a rock into a cave near the Dead Sea, and he heard something crack, heard a break. And he went in, and they discovered what would be the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've probably heard of them. 15,000 fragments of about 850 scrolls from ancient Judaism. Most of this is from, from the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this amazing find allowed scholars to be able to go, over, go back and compare the Old Testament manuscripts that they had been brought forward that were separated by hundreds of years from these fragments that were in the Dead Sea uh, caves. Now, uh, of major importance was a newly discovered copy of the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, uh, uh, this, what they found predated the earliest known copy of Isaiah by about a thousand years. So imagine what a find that was when they discovered how, how this had been preserved in a cave for some reason, these jars. And they compared these two copies of Isaiah alone, and they revealed that they were nearly identical. A thousand years separated by a thousand years, they were almost identical except for some minor spelling or stylistic differences. Even though one of the manuscripts had been copied countless times down through the years, they, there was really very little difference between the two texts. And that's just one example of how faithful these scribes were when they copied the Scriptures. They took this on as such an important mission for themselves. They, they copied these, and uh, they wanted to preserve the Word of God. So even though we don't have the original writings, what we do have is the copies that were reliably handed down over the centuries. You know, I think it's fascinating because they said that these scribes who copied the sacred text would take such painstaking efforts that to be totally accurate, they would even count the number of letters in the book, and then they would go back and count the number of letters in their copy just to make sure they hadn't left anything out. They would review this. This might be someone's life work just to copy a book of the Bible because it was such an important thing that they would carry the Word of God forward. So that's the third proof. The fourth proof is that the New Testament was written shortly after the events it records. Not only were the, were the copies accurate with the originals, but it's also important to know that the original writings were accurate to begin with. I mean, doesn't that make sense? You want to make sure that the Bible was right before you start copying it, right? 
Now, when it comes to New Testament, it's important to know that the Gospels were recorded relatively soon after the events which they, that which they record. And Paul's epistles, excuse me, were written probably 15 to 20 years after the time of Christ, and that's not very long. Now, the, the texts of the Gospels were written slightly longer than that, somewhere between 40 to 60 years after Jesus' resurrection by eyewitnesses. Now, the important thing is the eyewitnesses. Now, you, might, you and I might say, uh, well, 40, 60 years, that seems like a long time. But when it comes to ancient documents, that's a relatively short time as people record history. Also remember that Jesus promised them, I read a few moments ago, that the Holy Spirit would bring these things to their remembrance as they recorded them. So in other words, when they sat down and they wrote what Jesus said, they weren't just trying to remember it from their own ability. The Holy Spirit inspired them and brought these words back to them. So we have the red letter in your Bible, uh, the words of Jesus the Holy Spirit brought them back to mind what Jesus actually said, and we believe that. Now, since the written record was created in relatively close proximity to the actual events, those people who wrote the books were able to prove that this was true because they had many eyewitnesses. Whenever the Apostle Paul would defend the reality of the resurrection in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said this, then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, even though some have fallen asleep. So in other words, he said, 500 people saw Jesus. Most of them are out there. They're still alive. Go ask them. They'll show you and tell you what Jesus was like when he was resurrected. Some of them have died, but most of them are alive. If the resurrection had not been true, you can believe that Paul would have been public and confronted about this. He would never have made that bold a statement if it were not true and the witnesses had not been there. You know, the Bible is the most criticized, critiqued, an attack book in history. It's almost amazing how people intentionally attack the Bible. Unlike any other book, people go, how do we know the Bible's true? Nobody says, how do we know that the Iliad's true? <laughs> you know, nobody attacks those ancient scripts. And the reason is because the Iliad is not truth. It is, uh, the Bible is the truth, the Word of God. But if people could find faults in the Bible, they would have already have been found. Overall, there's absolutely no evidence that the Bible's ever been revised, edited, changed, or tampered with in any systematic manner. And in fact, the, the sheer uh, volume of biblical manuscripts makes uh, it very simple to recognize anybody's attempt to distort God's Word. Just go back to the original, trace it back. There's no major doctrine of the Bible that's put in doubt as a result of a spelling error or a stylistic difference, or whatever it may be. None of those things are questionable. The Bible that we, was written then, we have today. And down through the years, people have feared the Bible. That's why people attack the Bible. They, they don't like truth. And uh, down through the years, people have tried to, to do away with the Bible. Some have tried to burn all the Bibles, cop, uh, copies of the Bible. Some have tried to outlaw the Bible. Some have tried to keep it out of the hands of the common people. There was a time when the church... The Roman Catholic Church did not want the normal person to be reading the Bible, and they resisted that. But then the printing press in the 1400s changed all that and brought the Bible out, and, and then uh, and the people's language, the Bible became available for everybody. But in spite of all of that, the Word of God has survived and has overcome everything. One of my favorite stories about this is about the French philosopher and atheist Voltaire, and he railed against the Bible, many writings against Christians, against the Bible. And he predicted in 1776, he said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon 
by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. In other words, nobody's going to care about the Bible a hundred years from my death. And what is ironic is within 50 years after his death, in an ironic prince of providence, the very house in which he lived and wrote and spoke these words was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for Bibles and gospel tracts. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? The Word of God will persevere throughout all attacks until the return of God. How can we trust the Bible? We just looked at a few, just kind of touched the tip of the iceberg. How can we touch the Bible? Uh, trusted it is the true Word of God. And God has preserved His Word despite the unintentional uh, failings and intentional attacks of, of human beings. And the reality is it's remained down through time because it is truth. And we can have utmost confidence that the Bible that we have today is the same Bible that was originally written. The Bible, God's Word, and we can trust it. Now, the reality is we all have access to the Bible, but do we read the Bible? If we understand it's true, it's credible, it's reliable, then we ought to be looking at it as the instruction for life. You have one life to live. Don't blow it. The Bible tells you how to live. We read and study the Bible because it's the only way to know God. It's the only way to discover salvation. It's the only way to assure that when this life is over, this temporary life that we live, that we're going to live forever with our Heavenly Father. And so I want to encourage you to read the Bible. It's so important to be reading the Bible. Now, if you need a plan to read the Bible, sometimes people struggle with that. But there is a plan out in the lobby on the, the table there to read through the Bible in a year. Now, that's a great uh, challenge to some people. But if you've never read the Bible at all, maybe you don't want to start with reading through the Bible uh, in a year. If you want to just begin reading the Bible, you've never tried, start with the book of John, the Gospel of John. It will give you a, a great study of the life of Jesus, and, uh, and then you can move into Acts, the history of the church, and then you can move on in. Uh, to, to basics about Christian living. So let me encourage you. Again, the most important thing you can do, read your Bible. It is truth. It is God's Word, and we can trust it.